This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. SNS Arts have been making history in the Indian arts and music landscape for a while now, and I'll let this conversation give you a better and broader description of exactly how and why. That's the whole idea behind it. Before uh, we dive in though, I would like to advise listener discretion. This specific conversation, while addressing topics that are, needless to say, extremely global, does tend to focus on the South Asian arts landscape. I also don't want to color your lens too much by saying that, but I did want to put in a little comment there. A couple other things. This is a completely independent show so if you'd like to show us your support please go and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice share us on your instagram stories Uh, that's actually the only way we can spread the word of what we're trying to do here additionally i also would like to let you know that the holistic musician academy.com is in its beta phase two and there are a bunch of events happening online events webinars artist counseling sessions artist courses which you can pre-enroll for so if this is something you're interested in, do come around, say hi. Without much further ado, please welcome Shreya Nagarajan Singh. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Okay, I have my cup of tea, do you have yours? Coffee, so I'm actually... Pretty good to go. That was the second of the day. We are officially on tape. I just need to check my meters here. How are you doing today? Welcome. I'm doing very well. CL, how are you? I'm all right. Thanks. Um, you know what? For my listeners, uh, I should probably let them know we, we got on call a couple of days back to go through some of the stuff you want to talk about. I'm stoked to have Shreya on. Uh, you embody a very specific profile, which is not very easy to find access to in the arts landscape you work in, because a lot of the topics you address and work on are the kind of uh, things that don't necessarily get talked about very openly. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. And, you know, I I keep harping on about how these podcast recording sessions are not interviews and they're not. This is not me trying to be a journalist. Uh, I'm just a musician who wants to give insight, the kind of insight a lot of people, again, don't have access to. True conversations with fellow artists and creators. That being said, when I go through your email and look through your list of suggested topics i need to tell you this is the most badass list of topics i've ever received from a podcast guest <laughs> point being Good i want to <laughs> i want to let you know and i want to let my listeners know i do probably run the slight risk of ending up being an interviewer by default without having any set intentions for the same because uh you know these topics you've suggested these are exactly the kind of things i've been trying to dig into for years now decades even uh one could argue so uh, with your permission may i dig in absolutely let's dig in together 
All right, let's do it. Uh, I want to start off with you with the earlier uh, phase of your career. You started off as a dancer, as an artist, practicing artist, full time. You want to take us through a little mm-hmm. uh, about how that journey was to start off. You also studied um, under a, a very well respected Bharatanatyam teacher, dancer. So. Yep. Yep, yep. Radha Ramanathan. Yeah. Radha Ramanathan. I've been trying to look mm-hmm. her up a little as well. What was that journey like? Did you grow up in an artistic household? Was that a, a natural path for you? Or was it something you were just so passionate about you had to dig into? How did that begin? Yeah, um, it's a very special story and dance is very, very close to my heart. Mm. Uh, I've been born into a family of patrons um mm-hmm. and um musicians and dancers artists right. definitely uh, broadly but more performing artists so there's right from i was very young i was uh, exposed to bharatanatyam and carnatic music which are the traditional forms of dance from south india and tamil nadu also and um i was obsessed with dance <laughs> when i mean obsessed i mean obsessed so i couldn't think of anything else but dance and dance and dance i would eat dance sleep dance walk dance i didn't speak for a long time because i would just talk to everybody in terms of it with dance wow. um, my aunt was a bharatanatyam dancer so she was sort of my idol ramya harishankar she's a very well known dancer based out of california now and uh, so that kind of was um i knew and everybody knew that i was going to dance and i was going to be a dancer because it was all in my blood so to give you a little bit of um a uh, back story so my mom is tamil and my father is rajput mm-hmm. um and i have one thing from each of my parents which i am obsessed with so my father uh, is a self taught pilot um earlier you know in the early days of india where they didn't have flying schools wow. he would go on to the tip of the chamundi hills in mysore and learn to fly so i got my obsession for flying from my father and dance and the arts from my mother so, so you're a pilot <laughs> so i would love to be a pilot i started training a little bit um and it's my goal now that before i turn 40 so i have 5 years uh before i turn 40 that i want to have my private pilot license mm. so that's my 40 year goal because i was like okay i've spent 35 years dancing and being obsessed with the arts so now i should go to my second passion which is flying so these are the two things that i really even today i think give me a lot of purpose when i need clarity of mind i go and dance um and that always helps me center my focus my uh, intentions for what i'm doing and why i'm doing so it's very interesting to see how a form can help translate in terms of clarity and thinking for me uh, especially a form that's um like bharatanatyam which is very active right because it's it's you have to match the beat you have to remember the choreography you need to move you need to have facial expressions there will be jatis like there's a lot to unpack so you would think that but after a point it's just in your muscle memory that while you're doing that your mind actually sort of clears itself out in the process mm-hmm. but um so yeah i've been dancing um since uh, unofficially since i was probably like one and a half um with my family obsessing over me and my dancing i officially started learning dance since i was seven with another teacher and then i went uh to um and i it's worth saying here that the i feel the bharatanatyam dance scene is not necessary the teaching scene is not necessarily 
the most greatest teaching or learning experience because it's very competitive it's a little bit toxic uh you know the dance schools and the fo- the way they teach you etc mm-hmm. so um my first experience with my first teacher wasn't that great and i actually stopped dancing for a long time because it was that much of a hurtful experience but when i became 18 and i sort of like was trying to figure out what to do with my life i said what do i really want to do and this idea of dance just kept coming back to me and i said okay i'm 18 but i i'll go back and start from scratch and learn everything again because we go to a new school they start you from abc because it's a new style it's a different all these def- different types of for, you know styles within the form of bharatanatyam are there so right. it's not like you can just go start off from where you left off but i said it's okay i don't mind starting from scratch and that's when i met uh, radha aunty what we call her all of us in the industry call her radha aunty she's a, a phenomenal artist phenomenal person and uh, she and her sister kamala were very very well known dancers post independence when bharatanatyam was really sort of emerging as a form uh, after post independence and post colonial sort of um the times after that mm-hmm. bharatanatyam was being born and sort of defined and uh, radha aunty and kamala aunty were iconic and very important people who defined and put this style of bharatanatyam called varuvur on the map quick question when you say defined do you mean redefined bharatanatyam has a very complex history okay. and what we know as bharatanatyam today which a lot of people contest saying that it should be called modern dance because rukmini arundel who started kalakshetra sort of re approached bharatanatyam in terms of the form in terms of how it was presented she started putting on ballets mm. she changed the way we danced essentially it became she kind of made it modern in terms because it was sort of made only between the 20s and the 50s right and then of course various different type people adapted it mm-hmm. to the things in terms of the lines in terms of choreography in terms of putting an idea of a beginning minute beginning middle and end um and how we sort of presented the dance taking it away from the temples and putting it on public platforms so bharatanatyam earlier used to is sort of born from a different form called sadar right which was presented by um you know dancers of the temples mm-hmm. to there are people who are um from that same community or a lineage of dancers even today in fact mm-hmm. uh, we at sns just did a conversation with um muttu kanamalamma who is the last living sadar dancer alive today so mm-hmm. she has children and grandchildren etc of course but they don't dance sadar like the way she dances sadar and like the way people dance sadar so um it was a it was a, a very interesting conversation between her and mutuka and mangataya roma who is uh from the similar background but with a form called kalavantulu which sort of um has its roots in with kuchipudi right uh, in andhra so both of them are in their 70s both of them are the last in their line of dancers from those that era of dancing and um yeah so we uh, at our company we just did a conversation with both of them in january and it was quite fantastic in fact we're recording this today on international dance day amazing to kind of get back on track on your personal journey with dance uh, you talk about how at some point yes you decided to move into artist management instead that's quite a pivot <laughs> yeah I was saying that uh, when I was 18 uh, I started learning dance um with Radha aunty and then I did my Arangetram 
when I was about 21, 22, and, uh, which is considered late for people who are dancing because people do their anger when they're 15. But anyway, I did it a bit later, but I think it was much better for me. And then I traveled all around the world dancing um, solos and, of course, with my dance teacher school as well. And um, So you were a full-fledged practicing artist at this point? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was studying on the side too. I did psychology and I also uh, did my undergraduate in arts management at uh, a museum called Dakshin Chitra in Chennai. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, but it, through this journey, I realized that I love dance, but I felt there was so much pressure to perform and to be perfect, right? This idea of perfection mm-hmm. was such an obsession for teachers and audiences of and I just felt like that was removing the life and the soul of why you dance right did it feel if I may ask did it feel like a war between personal expression and confirmation uh absolutely you begin to question why you're doing something and you begin to Mm -hmm. question the root of your purpose and passion right Mm -hmm. and if it is only going to be dictated by an external eye then it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense Exactly, yeah. Intimately familiar. Yeah, and um, that's when I sort of decided I, the jo- my joy of why I was dancing was completely lost. Because I'm so sorry to hear. <laughs> I'm really sorry you had to go through that. But it was a re- revelation for me because I realized I didn't need, I danced for myself. So I, I was very clear that I didn't want to forget dancing. I didn't want to completely drop it and move to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, be in the field in some capacity, in some way. But there were also 100 million dancers in Chennai and around the world. They really didn't need one more dancer, right? So I was just like, okay, let me me figure out. And that's when I started, that's when I did my arts management um, uh, postgraduate diploma from um, the museum. Mm -hmm. And it really got me thinking and I really loved management. I love talking to people. I love managing situations. I'm great at putting out fires. I knew my strengths. I, I love bringing people together uh, in a very simple idea in terms of what I wanted to do. Mm. I love bringing different people uh, from different backgrounds and societies coming together. So this, I think, led me to sort of say, okay, this is probably one way I can help and still be connected to the arts and still be connected to dance and still do what I want to do. Um, so... That's how I got into arts management. <laughs> I can intimately relate. It's very interesting. Um, I actually started working for an artist management slash development slash PR company based out of NYC, uh, cyber PR. So shout out. Um, and it's it's funny, you know, I took up artist management in my bachelor's degree just because it seemed like the one thing remotely connected to many mm. of the other options I had in my liberal mm. arts degree. Mm. And I never in my life would I have realized that that would end up becoming actually very... What you do. Mm. Well, I want to be careful saying what I do because I still see myself as a practicing and performing artist in the first line of things. But uh, in my experience, after doing this for almost 25 years now, you realize there's only so much progress you can make without actually making active contributions to changes in the ecosystem in itself. Mm. You know, um, beyond a certain time, you can't really even progress as a practicing artist. Yeah, You realize that there's only 
so much freedom you can exercise in the manner in which you practice your art if certain changes are not made. And nobody's going to make those changes for you if you're not active in making them yeah. yourself. Mm. And there's also a dearth of management here. Like I want to also mention that there was nobody doing yeah. arts management. Yeah. There were people who were studying. But they were mostly artists who would go back to doing what they were doing. But there was nobody who was really invested as an arts manager who was educated in it. Everybody. Uh, That's the one, educated uh, in it. Exactly. exactly. That is the biggest differentiation, I think, between me and others in the field. I completely agree because a lot of times, uh, you know, usually art or music managers have had a history of being just a random guy who couldn't play an instrument or couldn't dance or whatever. And they just, okay, you're my friend, will you manage me? And uh, yeah, it's, it doesn't do justice to the enormity of the role that actually encompasses. Absolutely. Uh, and I think also yeah. in India, I don't know, uh, I feel like in India, everybody understands event management. So they just think people who manage mm. arts, uh, like, you know, it's a music concert or a gallery or whatever, is an arts manager. So they just look at event management and art management sort of being parallel things, but that's not at all it. So that's why I say, I say all arts managers are events managers, but not all events managers are arts managers. Uh, because Thank I mean, you so much for clarifying that. <laughs> right, because... I mean, uh, you, being an arts manager is more than just making sure, like, you know, the lights are up and, you know, uh, chairs are set up and coffee is ready or whatever. That's that's just a very small part of it. But that is a, a skill set I think all arts managers also need to have um, oh, yeah. in terms of Absolutely. the arts. I, 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 can't, I can't tell you how happy I am to, have, to know, to have the knowledge of you, someone like you actually taking that seat. Because, um, as you needless to say, uh, know that I think the core of artist management has its roots in psychology. You know, mm -hmm. It's it's actually it's it's also the lens you're using. You're mm -hmm. looking at the entire scenario from the inner lens of an artist yeah. uh, first, yeah, as opposed to the the extrinsic ones. Absolutely, behavioral psychology and customer <laughs> behavior and consumer behavior are probably like the strongest tools from psychology that I used that I use every day in terms of audience building and audience management as well as managing artists right and it's such a great skill to have and a great background to have in psychology because I feel like you're just much able to see some trends and also identify red flags much earlier than others you talk about the typical trap artists fall into in India with regards to arts and business mm -hmm. Um, how related is that to what we're talking about right now? This is what I've sort of understood. There are two traps artists fall into based on my understanding of the clients I work with and the larger industry at large. One is not understanding how to manage their finances. And the second is insecurity and um, fighting their own insecurity mm. on an everyday basis. Yep. I think these are the traps that they fall into. And the second one I think needs... Um, a lot of confidence building. They need good managers. They need a good support system who are constantly telling them, hey, don't worry, I have your back and we'll do this together and you're not alone. You know, things mm. like that, I think, make a huge difference is what I've noticed. Absolutely. Just know that, just so that they know that there's somebody in their corner when they're going out to exhibit their art and, and you know, be vulnerable, essentially. Yeah, we need that. Which is something that, we do and we like doing and we and we are very uh, mindful. We're very uh, sensitive to what we're doing and we're very sensitive to being, even when you're in a dance, 
dancers dancing on stage and we're in the backs and we're the wings we're really there for them you know we're we're not there checking our phone and sort of just sitting there waiting for them to finish we're there with them you know it's a very different um uh space because i think the backstage is a very private space actually when you think about it for an artist it's the space where things are actually happening people just are so obsessed with highlights <laughs> and think that's what the yeah. life of an artist is but the real the reality of it all is the behind the scenes exactly. so you have a ecosystem where people are constantly you know especially artists are constant constantly comparing the behind the scenes with people's highlights on social media mm. not realize being completely oblivious to how what a disaster that is waiting to happen yeah. that is not what is going on exactly exactly <laughs> and i think for those of us who you know are in that space we know what a vulnerable space that is for the artist because mm. you see them most vulnerable like 5 seconds before they're going to go out and then you see them 5 seconds as soon as they're done you know in terms of what they're feeling and all the emotions that are going through it's it's a very uh, so we're very sensitive and uh, we're very privileged to be in that space with the artist absolutely with the financials so Once I finished my dancing um I worked as an arts manager for many years I worked in the contemporary art field I worked with uh, museums I worked with uh, various different institutions before which I sort of figured out I needed um a stronger foundation a stronger understanding of arts management and that's when I applied for the Fulbright scholarship and I was happy to get that one mad respect thank you I was a bunch of nerves before that but anyway it came through and i went to columbia college chicago and did my masters in arts management from the department of uh, business and development so it was exactly what i wanted to do mm-hmm. and uh, once i came back i realized that this is the biggest learning for me is that when artists are financially in a good place their art completely transforms mm-hmm. um what they're able to do how expansive they're able to think so they're in a growth mindset they're in a safe mindset they're not in a, a scarcity mindset yep oh thank you so that changes things so much and that everybody knows but the question is okay so how do we bring artists who are at various levels right how do we bring artists who are in a scarcity situation in terms of resources and finances mm. into the mindset of growth though that may not be uh, the actual reflection of their bank account or whatever but how yes. do you get them to that mindset so that they can create work that can then sort of feed into revenue generation streams right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um that's when we started working a lot so then i realized it's not just enough if you manage an artist get the artist opportunity etc if the artist is not managing his financials financials in a proper way if he's not saving if he doesn't have an emergency fund if he doesn't have health insurance if he doesn't have at least some basic small investments that he's doing um this is not going to work and i'm not going to really be able to help this artist forever because i can't keep keep getting you opportunities is one thing but knowing that you're going to be, you're going to from from you know 2002 to 2025 you have to financially have grown and saved as well uh otherwise we're just in square one and you're doing more and more gigs but really nothing is changing from the financial side you're spending as much as you're earning and at some point it all checks out and then you'll be you know towards the end of your career with with not much money when you have to retire so now what we do is we talk about when you want to retire 
What age is that? What does that look like? We do a lot of visioning and future exercises with our clients. Mm-hmm. And then we figure how to work backwards. Reverse engineer. Yeah, in terms of their uh, how much, what are their monthly costs, right? Like rent, petrol, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then how much are they earning now? So where's the gap? How do we fill the gap? Uh, do they need more marketing? Do they need fundraising? Do they need sponsorship? Do they need uh, a place to practice, a place to rehearse, a place to work uh, and produce your art? Um, do they just don't have resources to even buy basic materials? Like, what is it, right? So then once we've audited and sort of understood the artist and what they want and how to get there, then we start setting up various different ways um, in strategically building their career, not only from an outside perspective, but also from a financial perspective. Brilliant. Brilliant. Permission to respond. Yes, please. There are so many points in there. You, I just really, really have been wanting to dig in for a while now. Let me start with the uh, the very first one, the scarcity versus, um, for lack of a better term, growth mindset. Uh, some people use the word abundance, which I struggle with sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not because the word itself, but just because the connotation mm. is in the uh, social circles that tends to be associated with in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a step backwards, another step backwards and um, address the fact that one of the bitterest pills um, for an artist to swallow, I think, is the realization that it's one unless you're using art for therapeutic purposes mm. only mm. Uh, you are a business by default mm. that is that is some <laughs> major cognitive dissonance uh, the professional artist uh, mm-hmm. deals with at the beginning of the career unfortunately for a lot of people it that beginning never even begins mm. the fact that they really do have to look upon their career as a business it's a concept that in a lot of demographics is just still completely foreign i remember actually um having a conversation with a uh, professional artist who i was close to and uh, talking to them about how here are three businesses i'm currently working on and the reply i got oh really you have business acumen Mm. it was such a stark confrontation with how large the gap is between yep the educated and the non-educated musicians. That's another thing people, or artists, forgive me, people tend to mistake trained artists with educated artists. There's a gap. Mm. Training is not education. You could be fantastically trained, but that doesn't Mm. necessarily give you the education to Mm. actually build on something on your own independently with your own agency. When you talk about scarcity versus growth mindset, that's a big one. Because uh, as you probably know, I've been um, working a little more intensely as an educator in India for the past couple of years. Mm, yes. Well, most of my work is online anyway. I try and work location independently. And I do have a specific brand of passion for India itself because uh, the very earlier part of my professional journey started here. So I feel this inherent need to give and be that person I was looking for when I was in a lot of these younger artists' shoes. Mm. Um, uh, the biggest, um, the biggest accusation I deal with is coming from a space of privilege when I try and talk to these artists and tell them, "Listen, mm. you know, you got to understand. You have, you cannot think like a laborer. You're not a laborer. Right? You're a creator. One, which means you do create things which don't necessarily exist right now." Of course, I am privileged. I uh, uh, have had the chance to kind of 
be exposed to a lot of different cultures all around the world, both geographically and culturally from a very early age. Mm. But um, I find it also tricky to try and have this conversation with a lot of the younger artists who are, uh, in a way have fallen victim to the system of victimhood. Absolutely. The arts ecosystem thrives on victimhood, you know, and it's it's uh, such a toxic codependent relationship that most of these younger artists are completely oblivious to. Yeah. My question to you is, okay, before I hand this over to you again, sorry for <laughs> that long ramble. No, I agree with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I uh, I actually started working on a course, which I'm still doing research for, which is still in beta. Mm. And for the research, uh, I had about seven participants, uh, younger musicians uh, in their early 20s to late 20s. Mm. And I think about four of them were in from India, mm. um, homegrown Indian artists. Mm. And I think two of them were homegrown women artists in the early 20s who are uh, dealing with some very specific uh, issues. The good news is after we'd gone through this uh, material, it was they really did see that vast gap and uh, the feedback I've gotten till now, mm. uh, I can say that now because it's going to be official again in a few more weeks, uh, was that wow, it's like all of a sudden that the entire perspective changed. It was like an aha moment. Yeah. So... My question to you now, thanks for hearing me out, uh, is where do you start with someone who uh, possibly has dealt with the very toxic cultures of pedagogy to start off with? Because that's another whole can of worms. Yeah. And to let them know, hey, listen, you are not part of some collective who is trying to use you as part of their agenda. You do have the freedom. You are free to choose to build a sustainable fulfilling career on your own terms where do you start with this so it's a very very good question tl and um i've learned this the hard way is that everybody has an agenda mm. and i have an agenda too my agenda is to give the artist agency and to give him those superpowers mm -hmm. so that he can he or she or they can function on their own, mm -hmm. in their own ecosystem and build a business and revenue model around them. And so, but when I do that, and if they're coming from a, a toxic environment or a toxic industry, when they've already been manipulated and exploited, if I try to reflect that and give them advice, it doesn't really work. So two things I do. One is I always tell them what I want to do with them and how I can help them. And then I leave it. They need to make the first step in putting in uh, the faith in me and their need to uh, break out of that. Right. So they need to make that step and come and be like, no, I really want to learn this. I really want a manager. I really want to do whatever it is. Right. I really want to earn. Basically, I really just want to earn more money. I want to be by myself. I want to be independent. So they need to come and have that conversation with me, number one. Number two is I, it's always action over explanation. Instead of explaining to them what's happening, I actually sit with them and work with them and show them results. Mm. And that is the only way I've realized the change is deep and the shift is permanent. Mm -hmm. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it the abuse, the toxicity, the yep. everything. So yeah. 
there's no even for somebody who's deep in it if you're explaining it to them they're not going to get it and this is where i was in many situations as well so i really i have learned that it's just results it's action it's uh it's change in behavior it's opportunities doing what you're saying you're going to do mm-hmm. is what really makes them understand it at a deeper level mm-hmm. And that's what we want, right? It's much more easier to to show that in action mm. and that change be permanent. And then once once it's there, then the whole conversation changes, the perspective changes, the solutions change. Otherwise, the client and me are always going to want different things. We're never going to be yeah. on the same page to begin with. So, yeah. I think the only way there is to show it to them. How challenging do you find accountability? as a topic with your artists so there are two different ways uh, i acknowledge accountability my company is a consulting company mm-hmm. and the reason i made it a consulting company when i started is because i wanted to be able to access artists from different genders mm-hmm. different classes mm-hmm. different castes different geographical areas mm-hmm. and different genres i wanted to literally be open to anybody in the arts who who needs help with development or management in any form. Mm. And that's why we work project to project, right? In terms of 6 months, 5 months, 2 months, whatever. And those are very clear deliverables we have at the end of the project, right? right? We need to whatever scale by 20% or we need to have raised x number of monies or whatever. But when it comes to uh one-on-one consultations, the accountability is completely on them because they come to me with a problem and i work with them and i tell them you pay me by the hour so it works financially for you mm-hmm. right so you can decide to do one hour with me or you can do 10 hours with me it's fine it's on you know and but i'm not going to do the work because that's a project right then if you're right. hiring me and my team mm-hmm. then we work on a project basis but if you say no 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 shreya i can i can do this i just need some help i just need some guidance i just need somebody to put you know, draw that map out for me then i'll i'll figure it out and i totally uh, respect that and it's great for me because i get to work with more artists this way because when i work project to project i can only take on 5 6 clients at any given time but this way i get to work with a bigger larger gamut of artists fantastic and there the accountability lies with them how do you see them performing with that accountability i'm curious if i may ask if if that's not overstepping may i ask you what your experiences have been there I know how accountable they're going to be in the first 5 sessions. How do you do that if I may pick your brain on it? Action. TL complete action. Mm, Because I, like I don't yeah. like to make a decision about somebody especially if they're a client mm. and there's room for change and 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 growth, right? Brilliant. And I do not want to get stuck in the idea of okay you know they didn't do this in the first class or they I mean the first session so they're not going to do it in the second session brilliant i'm like this is your life i appreciate that this is your career i think i might have just asked you a trick question <laughs> without is... meaning to there so if you come to me saying <laughs> thank you brilliant answer please <laughs> keep going sorry i keep interrupting you no no so i was just saying but for me it is what has been fascinating for me is understanding trends this is where i think my psychology background comes and i'm i love it i love understanding how to i love understanding how people will are are uh, responsive to a situation and how it is after a point so predictable and you would think that it's not going to be predictable but it actually is and, and ex- going back to what you would ask me in the first in the first question is yeah in the first five sessions i know how serious they are in terms of the commitment and change they're trying to make 
So if one of the things they come and say to me, hey, Shreya, you know, I'm not getting opportunities as much as I want as an artist. And I want you to help me change, right? I want you to help me build this side of my business. Mm-hmm. I'm like, great. So we start off with various different exercises we do. First, in terms of how much money they need, which means how many gigs they need. Then how do we increase that by 10% year on year? We do the same basic math. Then we say, okay, where are my current opportunities coming from? Then we analyze that. Then we look at new markets. We will do a SWOT analysis. Do we want to clear the slate clean and completely look at a different audience, a different city, a different market altogether? Various different ways we do it. But at every stage, I give them homework. Because mm-hmm. I said, I'm a consultant. I'm not going to sit and do this homework for you. You have to go analyze X, Y, Z, because this is a consulting session. So I know from the, what they come back and do in the next session, I know how serious they are with, with, because that is the action has to reflect TL at some point. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a marquee artist, if you really want to have transformative art, you have to have to put in the hours of discipline, understanding yourself, understanding your strength, understanding your position in the market, understanding how to break from that or to evolve. Yeah. If you're not, and we're here to help you do that. You don't have to do it alone. Yeah. That is the part where I love looking at trends is in the five sessions, first five sessions, I know how invested they are. And you know what? Probably 30% of people are the only ones who are as invested. And after that, you know, the 10th, 15th session, they'll drop off because they're not able to go deep mm. within their understanding. But the 20, 30% who... Uh, push, break those barriers, are uncomfortable with what's happening with themselves, right? They're they're being vulnerable. They're understanding that people are not inviting them. Why are they not inviting them? What is it that I need to do? Those are uncomfortable questions to deal with. But the artists who are sitting actually dealing with those questions are the ones who actually make the breakthrough. Yeah, those are uncomfortable questions. And they're also, I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the biggest source of discomfort in that specific area, why am I not being invited? Why am I not? Why am I not getting enough gigs? Is realizing that there's only one half of the equation you have any control over. Mm. No matter, even mm. if you're doing your hundred fifty percent best, it also is one of those moments where you're like, oh, what's the environment I'm in? And I kind mm. of revert back to where I got to. I personally, as an artist, got to a point where I stagnated because uh, I did the best I could with my environment. And I knew that anything else I can do to contribute is at this point to try and do my best to actually change the environment I'm in, which is a risky space yeah. to be in, mind you. You know, there's, there's such mm. a fine line between contributing and controlling or having illusions of the same. Yes, mm. yeah. absolutely. And also because you don't go to a new environment, in many ways, you have to start from scratch. So being ready to do that right. and to invest that time oh, yeah. to go back and start introducing yourself, meeting people, putting yourself out there. It's very difficult. I mean, it's not easy. But what I keep saying is if you don't do it now, you're going to have to do it sometime. So it's better to be strategic. And I think it's important to know what you're getting into, right, Dale? I think that's another thing that uh, Indian artists often, often talk to me about destiny and luck mm. a lot. A lot. Interesting. They always tell me, yeah, but, you know, that artist got lucky. Or, you know, my luck has been bad for the last couple of days. That's the one. You know, or I can do all of this, but, you know, it's all up to luck at the end. And I I kept wondering, you know, uh, know, I'm somebody who believes in destiny a lot. I'm, you know, I go to astrologers. I'm I'm in that, in that cycle, but I would never chalk down what is happening to me down um, to luck. 
So maybe it's again a privileged mindset, which I'm trying to sort of analyze into. Maybe I have the privileges of the life of financial security, etc., where I don't think I need luck. Uh, I think hard work and a strategic mindset will get anybody anywhere. But when artists talk to me about luck, that's when I I tell them, okay, so then do we sit around and wait for the luck to change, or do we want to you know go and create the luck that you want? Yeah, um, I resonate. That's something that I think is very specific to Indian artists. My non-Indian artists never talk about luck. Yeah, I can. I'm not surprised in the least. Um, I feel like the hashtag here is discernment, discerning between mm. actually, honestly, quite aware of the role luck can play. But even that is a question, questionable concept, like being at the right place at the right time uh, can be looked upon the, the byproduct of a certain skill set of having a feel mm. for, you know, w- what am I doing? Self-reflection, you know, how much am I working, how, how much inner work am I doing to kind of create situations where I'm at the right place at the right time. That's a bit of a rabbit hole, I know, but... Um, yeah, but you have to confront it. Yeah, I, feel I agree, it, yeah. absolutely. I mean, everybody needs to, um, because then the luck becomes the, the card they want to play when they don't want to work. Bingo. That's what I believe it is. Absolutely, bingo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm totally in your camp on this. And also just realizing that we never, re- an artist is never helpless. That's a myth. That's a myth that yeah. really needs to be busted. There is always something you can work on. There is always something mm. you can actively add momentum to. Mm-hmm. It's just a skill set. Yeah. Completely in your camp there. Um, so this is what we do with our artists. Many hours of this. Mm-hmm. I keep saying the first the first thing we do is just give them support. And you, I think that does 50% of the job, to be very truthful. Um, give them support, unconditional support. I don't know, yeah. you know. Um, and then talk to them, strategy, focus, discipline. Where, you, where are you? Where do you want to go? How do we get there? Very simple. Three steps is what we really work on. And it's been fun. Tell me about the role of a female leader in a male-dominated space, especially with regards to um, well, leadership generally as a as a as a concept. It's a word that gets thrown about quite a lot in the current global scenario. Mm. And uh, I find it also interesting yeah. how uh, I, I see a huge clash of cultures uh, in post-internet India and pre-internet India. I, I had the major privilege of spending about a decade in uh, pre-internet India and to see the vast differences. Mm. And I also find uh, it very interesting how certain hashtags, buzzwords are often, um, one, bypassing a lot of contextual aspects when it comes to India Mm. and uh, two, uh, honestly get uh, misused, misinterpreted Mm. leadership equality mm. these are two of the biggest ones yeah so what's it been like being such an enormously qualified passionate artist uh, who pivots into an artist manager with a global perspective like yours and you're working in an environment that has been dealing with a lot of labeling as essentially a misogynistic uh, part of the world to work in. Yeah. What's going on here? What have your experiences been? Before I jump into my experiences, I want to tell you a little bit about my uh, 
my crisp with leadership. Mm-hmm. So I did a one of the things, uh, another fellowship that I got was a fellowship from the East West Center, mm-hmm. which is based in Hawaii, mm-hmm. the middle of the East and the West, but is essentially a U.S. Congress funded body mm-hmm. to develop uh, relationships, healthy relationships, uh, diplomatic relationships mm-hmm. between Asia Pacific and the U.S. Uh, this was post World War Two, so they. Created in Hawaii, it's a beautiful center, and I got I was selected to go to an Asia Pacific leadership program, where essentially you apply and they pick forty people from around the world from various different backgrounds, various different age groups to come to Hawaii for nine months to study leadership. Mm-hmm. I was twenty three when I did this. Uh, it was after my first arts management degree and after I got amazing. Um, clarity in terms of wanting to shift from arts man- dance to arts management. I danced for about seven, eight years. You know, I was, it was, I knew I needed to um, do something differently. Uh, and I was trying to, struggling to figure out what. And this leadership program was fantastic because, I mean, like some of my classmates are, who is now is the mayor of Okinawa in Japan. Another one is like the second in command in the Philippines army. Really? One was a Buddhist monk. I mean, it wow. was a, wild mix and we had a great time Uh, it was a fantastic program and what I learned there you we had experts from leadership various different types of leaders uh, basically coming talking to us and various exercises that we did that helped identify what type of leader we all are because I think we're all leaders you just have to figure out what type of leadership like Mm -hmm. being a good number two in a position is so is as important as a strong number one. Interesting. That's when I sort of um, sat and understood from through various exercises and introspection and work to for people is what really this meant. And I what I learned TL is how to lead myself. Um, mm. And I realized I can't first lead anybody if I don't know how to lead myself. And that. Um, also, a big component of that is I got a grant to do research in anything I wanted. And I decided to study dance in Southeast Asia. So for about six months, I traveled all across Southeast Asia alone mm-hmm. in a pre-smartphone uh, world where I would like mug up the map wow. uh, when I was going out. Mad respect. Because the maps were really big and I didn't want to carry a whole bunch of stuff. So I would literally like by heart the route of how to go to a place. Wow. And then just walk and go. I mean, this was in 2010. It was not as old as 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 far away as I thought it would be. But I lived in Cambodia, Indonesia, uh, Myanmar. Our final presentations were in Myanmar, uh, in uh, Vietnam, and uh, it was uh, Thailand as well. It was a life changing experience because I'm from a very protective environment and protective family. So mm-hmm. I was 23 with. No real access to internet kind of thing, you know. But just traveling with myself alone uh, for six months changed my life. And that's when I learned to lead myself. So first let lead, lesson in leadership was there. The second lesson is when I started, when I came back and um, I started my company. Mm. That's when the challenges were at a different level. Because before that, in all the projects that I worked, I was given work and I was given responsibility. So there was no leadership as much as more of accountability, right? Hey, you said you're going to do this, this, this. Have you done it? Right. That's not leadership. That's just sort of delivering on time. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say. When I came here and I started my own company, I realized how much 
the conversations changed and how much people are not used to seeing women especially mm. in the arts in a leadership role in a decision role so if you take the carnatic music and uh, bharatanatyam field in chennai let me be more specific right the classical dance field uh, classical music dance field or most of the artists are women in dance okay i'm going to say like 80% probably 90% of the artists are women mm-hmm. but probably 99% of the leadership of organizations who are presenting platforming arts are all men wow. are all men from a specific caste from a specific class from a specific areas in in, in chennai uh and who are all probably about 50 60 that's pretty pretty scary yeah these are the men who decide who performs who doesn't perform perform who gets paid who doesn't get paid how much they get paid and in music however the ratio of male and female is much more uh, i think equal i think there are probably more male uh, musicians instrumentalists etc than female for sure mm-hmm. but in dance the ratio is opposite so only when i started working and i started getting a seat at the table did people actually start becoming uncomfortable and they would never give me space to talk or involve me in the conversation so i had to and i'm not the kind of person who will interrupt somebody just because i want to make a point or just because i want to feel heard i'm i i'm much prefer just listening and contributing when i feel i really have something important to say in any meeting even my own meetings i feel like that's the role i like to play and i want to play so i would never talk for the first few times i would never talk because i'd be like i'll get my turn to talk and i kept waiting and my turn would never come mm-hmm. like even in client meetings the client would spend so much time talking but when i spoke they were hardly listening so it was more like hey i want you to do this so they were looking at yeah you are an owner of your company but they were looking to make me treating me like an employee they were not treating me as a consultant or an outside body that you're hiring to help you fix your problem right that's different from somebody who's working for you <laughs> so it was a pretty first challenging few years because i had to learn to speak up mm. um i had to learn to create space fight for space make space i also learned to observe the quietest person in the room apart from me right uh, instead of listening to the loudest person in the room which is where my focus was for many years wow uh, listening to the quietest person in the room started being my um my sort of approach because i was going if i'm quiet why are they quiet right the people wow. who are trying to speak are fighting for it that's that's a different ball game but why is this other person quiet what do they want to say or what are they not saying what they should be saying those kind of dynamics of power i began to really understand in a very different way the third one is collaborations i realized that when i collaborated with other women it was actually a, a great experience it, it was rich it was uh, as equal as it gets there was accountability there were apologies there was understanding of hey you're doing too much let me do a little bit and vice versa mm-hmm. but whenever i collaborated with men it was us doing 60-70% of the work and them sort of not acknowledging it and taking credit for it and you know being very difficult to work with and again it didn't come from anything else it's not from the lack of ability or skill it was just the understanding that okay she'll do the work and I don't need to do it for whatever reasons right so those sort of um, those sort of experiences really changed the way I also offered to do work in collaborations right I would not even though I could do more work I wouldn't I'd be like no I said I'm going to do this 
and you are going to do that. And though it's very easy for me to do a little bit more and probably have much larger impact, we're not going to do it because then the tables turn and then people start taking you for granted. The last and probably most important lesson that I learned is how to manage my time as a leader, mm. which again, I think is something that I'm still learning to do. Uh, is, <laughs> because running a team of, you know, we have, we have people, we have people who work for us in Bombay and Chicago. We have clients in Australia. We have clients in the U S you know, I have a four or five member team in Chennai. We do events. We're writing grants. We're doing everything right. It's a full service organization mm -hmm. and it's a small team of six, seven people, but they're all people who have different levels of knowledge when it comes to arts management, different strengths. Mm -hmm. And so keeping it together as a team. And then on top of that, also doing my work, Again, it's a question of, of leadership, right? And then I realize whether it's my clients or it's my team, a lot of the work in leadership uh, is not ne necessarily work related to the tasks of the day. It's related to um, how your employees feel, how mm. your team members are recognized, yeah. Yeah. how they deal with each other, what are they going through in their personal life and being there for them. And um, it's a lot of that. They're equipped to do the work, but uh, sometimes just talking to them about what is not okay at home, especially if they bring it up, is it's important. Like you have to take time off and help them deal with that if you're really looking to provide a safe space, but also a productive team. Mm. So are you going to say something? I was just about to say I'm, I'm, I'm a very vocal advocate of the why what how framework mm -hmm. and uh, i mean the why as you're intimately familiar with is a inner psychological aspect which uh, is, can be personal as well and the what is actually in most cases uh, easy to figure out i mean most management schools will give you a, a list of uh, time-tested resources that can be used as what and at some point is eventually going to work uh, mm. but but the how that's the big one yeah it's always the big yeah. one that's where i've experienced the biggest uh, conflicts the biggest confusion and i also find it uh, i still find it one of the most underestimated aspects i'll say it this way i think some of the most successful people i have m had the privilege to work with or meet mm. or know or consider my friends and colleagues are the ones who've mastered the how. It's not so much the what, it's mm. obviously the why. I mean, without the why, mm. the other two don't even follow. But yeah. the, the how they go about it is what eventually defines the trajectory of their careers. Yeah. And I think it's challenging because when you're in such an informal economy, mm. um, the how oh, is so difficult to figure. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that I feel my life's, uh, goal and my company's goal is that's what I want my legacy to be. Like, I don't, I don't need my company to be around for the next 200 years. That's not necessarily what I want right now. What I want really is to set up a system where artists can grow and basically build the steps mm -hmm. to success. Right. And doing that in this economy, in, in this economy is difficult. And then doing it in formal economy is difficult, especially because it's such vast, discrepancies from like let's say rural artists how they practice and run their business is so different from the way an, an artist in an urban area 
would do it. Mm. Um, and then you look at crafts, then you look at performing arts, then you look at uh, writers. I mean, then between all the genres is even more complexity. Then you add the cultural angle to it. Then you add the language angle to it. Then you add the states that are well-to-do and the states that are not well-to-do. Like it's, it, it can just, it can be mind-boggling. But I feel that there is a how. There is a how. But what I've been able to do is figure out the how on a one-on-one and an artist-centric approach, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Figuring out the how from a larger context of the Indian art scene is probably what one of my missions in my life will be. What would you say the salient aspects of the Indian art scene are in comparison to the rest of the world? I, I mean, I have a few opinions slash experiences, but uh, may I ask what do you, yours are? Can we hear yours and then I'll tell you mine? <laughs> <laughs> happy to uh, share mine. Um, we'll start off with... I think the biggest aspect uh, I find uh, that just sets India apart from any any other part of the world are just the sheer numbers mm. and the implications of the same. Uh, one of the things I notice now are the manner in which a lot of international brands are swooping in to India, mm. declaring mm. it the you know here's a you know showing a lot of interest, mm. declaring it uh, you know uh, as a trump card of sorts. Uh, but I am very skeptic of their motives. Mm. And uh, I'm also skeptic of the fact that I use this example for uh, Instagram, for example, there I read a recent article um, on conversion rates being a thing um, mm. um, on Instagram, like uh, 20 European followers, uh, sorry, 20 Indian followers or Chinese followers equals one European or US follower on Instagram, something like that. Mm. Uh, interesting. Mm. Um, Mm, um, so, mm. um, so the manner in which the numbers are manipulated, I'm not sure, maybe manipulated was a strong word there, or used, is mm. huge. And the implications are really not the same in comparison to many other parts of the world. I think secondly, the sheer diversity of it is just incomparable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're looking, you're looking at so many different languages, so many different cultures, it's it's a continent and people call it a subcontinent, but I, I wouldn't even yeah. call it a continent. It really is a continent. Right? It's not even a, the, yeah. the word sub is even actually very debatable. It is a full-blown yeah. continent with vast differences amidst people, even in the same city at, at times. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. You know, you could be in a different part of Chennai and be in a different universe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. And that could be two streets away from where I live. Yes. I mean, it's not even like, oh, it's like north and south. This is could be street to street difference, you know. Um, Bingo. And, and, my, and the third one and the last one it actually is the, honestly, the, the patriarchal nature of it. It is uh, stunning for me to observe. Mm. Absolutely stunning. I, it's, I, I spend uh, a regular of two or three hours a week shaking my head in disbelief. well we live it every day and uh, the challenges are steep yes i'm not even sure how appropriate it is for me to comment on this as a man but even as a man i shake my head in disbelief because allow me to and not to play victim here but uh, you know here are my experiences something might be interesting for you to know as a europe 
primarily a European dude with an Indian name and brown skin tone, it is. Mm. It, I realize that a lot of times I come across as a total douche primarily because I just assume a woman I'm talking to is confident in her status as mm. an equal in the conversation I'm having. Mm. And I realize mm. that that is not always the case and I end up overwhelming them or um, coming across as overbearing. But I'm actually mm. looking for counters from uh, a lot of conversations yeah. with women uh, which are interpreted as attacks instead a lot of times mm. or, or interrogations and... and uh, I'm learning the hard way and needless to say, I'm pretty sure I'm not perfect about the way. I, but um, I, mean, I think that's a very steep learning curve I'm trying to get a hang of after spending pretty much all my adult life in Europe. I, I understand. No, I agree with you in terms of uh, what are the major things that sort of stand out, the mm -hmm. salient features. Mm -hmm. Definitely diversity, number of people in terms of number of, in terms of audience and mm -hmm. artists, in terms of form. In terms of um, the the sheer various different systems that are in place, depending on which part of an urban or rural India you belong to, like for example, when you go to um, like Tamil Nadu, like when you go and listen to like watch a all night folk performance, Katekuta mm -hmm. uh, Terukuta performance that we uh, which is a folk performance in. Um, Rural India, when I mean rural, I mean smaller towns, right? Um, villages, etc. The village pays the artist up front the night before the show. Before the show starts, they're paid in full, right? This never happens in an urban area. If you get paid 50% before your gig, it's a great uh, win. Um, and then, of course, most of the money only comes after you've played your gig. So things are very different in the way people conduct their business in the arts as well. And absolutely, the patriarchy, everything is built with that lens, TL. And I think that really makes a big difference in terms of when I come and bring my perspective, which is a women's perspective, which is a different perspective of why something should or should not change. And it's also with me being an artist, right? I have danced. I, I know what it is to be on the other side as well that most of the leadership don't have. It's a different, um, they're not, I think that's when people realize that systems have been built with a male gaze mm. that is, works for advantage um, for men. Very well put. Um, and that's something that is slowly changing and um, and slowly being revisited, let's say. And also looking at the class and caste angle on top of that, not just gender. I think all of that has to be taken into considera consideration and the intersectionality and complexity of that issue as well, right? So is, let's say, a Dalit man is, you know, is he, what kind of status does he have versus a Dalit woman? versus, let's say, a uh, upper caste uh, woman uh, and how they get treated in society. So, I mean, the caste, class, gender complexity is, I mean, the class and gender complexity exists everywhere. And then you add caste to it. India really um, uh, is, a, is a tough market that way. Yeah. Um, and this is where I want to say that it's not just about giving opportunity to people who don't have the resources or don't have the access. It's about giving them opportunity with power. That's, I think, the main difference between tokenism and actually giving somebody 
a chance to do something and change life is you don't put them at the margins you give them power and put them at the center bingo that is truly giving them agency and power i'm hopeful i'm hopeful that that things will change yeah again just to add a few thoughts it's it's such a fine line i mean giving someone a meal and teaching them to plant a seed instead uh, you know that's mm-hmm. they're two very vastly different actions and often uh, looked upon as the same you know there's i was about to say it's a fine line but actually it isn't even a fine line between charity and mentorship or uh, true uh, support so many so-called supporters are just people with some pretty strong savior syndromes really yeah yeah what is your advice to younger just younger uh women um artists or non-binary uh and actually and from my perspective more importantly almost because uh, i honestly feel the ones who really need more advice are the males mm. so what is your advice to younger males who actually want to make a difference because you know speaking as a male myself i can tell you patriarchy actually ends up being as toxic for the male mm. Uh, mm. as it does uh, for it's it's probably not as drastic help us out tell us what your advice is to younger male artists who want to make a difference mm-hmm. in the arts ecosystem male artists male organizers male curators yeah, male yeah. programmers male, male any players, of them yeah yeah, yeah i i would say start working with women first mm. of all mm. um and start working with other genders forget about women other mm-hmm. genders so you understand them at a deeper level work as not hiring them but work as equals work as equal collaborators and i think that's the first way to understand your role and uh, and sort of be reflective about the power that you automatically have when you walk into a space or when you walk into uh, a collaboration i have a troublesome question to counter that with yeah i often struggle with the again people mistaking equality for equal skill sets um equality is not a, a monocultural lens there yes. are many multiple aspects to it yes and just fyi i've had the privilege of being mentored by a lot of um, female mentors too which has been a, a real blessing in my life mm. um and the irony is it is what i refer to the feminine way to actually gracefully adapt to a situation where your equality isn't defined by your skill sets but you also actually leap in and kind of use that disparity in skill sets to kind of up yours does that make sense mm. except when i try and explain this concept mm. mm-hmm. to a female collaborator whose skill set doesn't have the same degree of life experience as mine i'm the douche uh and that is a very tricky space to be in so mm. any pointers you would have mm. to navigate those would be super appreciated it's a tricky one isn't it it's tricky i i've been in your situation but gender reversed yeah. right because i'm qualified at what i do and i have lots of clients who are very privileged who are male who come to me want the work to happen but don't want to give me the power to do it that just sucks yeah I think that's why maybe we should set the expectations still. What I would do is I would set those expectations saying, "Hey, these are your skill sets, these are my skill sets. These are the skill sets that I think I can help you with and mm-hmm. and teach you if you want to learn how to do this, for example. It could be let's say understanding Excel mm-hmm. really well and doing complicated math on Excel. Mm-hmm. It's something maybe the other person from the other gender doesn't know. 
and they want to about giving them space saying hey i know this is my job and i can do this really well but in case you want to learn this i'm happy to teach you and maybe we can share the responsibility this way or something like that maybe setting those expectations right up front which is difficult to do in one way because you don't know what all you have to do but that's why i think in collaborations the more and more we work with other partners we first make an exhaustive list of everything that has to be done and i mean exhaustive sit and think about everything that's going to go wrong everything that's going to go right mm. and who's going to deal with it if it goes wrong and who's going to deal with it if it goes right and between these two scenarios everything in between that has to be get done also and i think once you make that which is a bit of a pain and if that, that whoever with the power or vision of the project does that and then is able to allot and have a road map then i think it's easier for people to find which is their space which is the shared spaces between in the project which is the space that they have to do themselves and really coming up with accountabilities there brilliant that's where it is accountable because in many cases my clients for example don't you will will not allow me to do the work because of whatever reason but then also hold me yeah. accountable if they don't get the deliverables they want which is unfair yeah totally with you i'm actually right in the thick of a situation which is exactly how you describe right now no the situations are going to come in but i think how we navigate it here is going to make all the difference because if we are able to to come up with a system or at least a few different ways in which we can acknowledge it that is the only way we can upskill mm-hmm. where there has to be a time where we all have similar skill sets if i work with three other arts managers but they're not let's say as skilled as i am because they don't have the experience as i do or they don't have the education but they do not have the education because let's say they're from a certain caste that doesn't give them the privilege and access that i had then they're starting on a back foot right so that is where i know i have to overcompensate and work but also give them room to learn and understand and upskill also that makes a lot of sense thank you yes uh, so work with other genders number 1 and then number 2 is to really um acknowledge the patriarchy understand the patriarchy and listen because again with me with the cast angle um for me it was once you see it you can't unsee it and i think even for men once they see the power that comes with patriarchy i don't think you can i mean maybe people are you know um want to shut it out on purpose but you can't un- unsee once um you've experienced the challenges that are there in the community no matter what the yeah. issue right class caste yeah. or gender or patriarchy so i think that once you do that it's it's how you react to it so once you've seen it it's do you want to you know put it under the carpet and try to like pretend it doesn't exist do you want to enjoy your powers and don't want to acknowledge it or do you know it and do you not want to do anything about it or do you want to know it but do the tough job of understanding it and breaking it down and sharing space and power work with people of other genders another caste and other class then you really begin to understand it in a very much more personal way instead of just looking at it theoretically then it, you really i think internalize it differently i don't know if you know here one of the things that i did in the last two years is actually having speed networking sessions just for women and women identifying um because i felt that many networking things that i would go to would predominantly be men mm. and men would very rarely talk to a woman and then or even involve them into a conversation saying hey why don't you come join us you know what do you do nothing nobody's interested right um or it's a very very small percentage who are actually going to involve you 
into their little boys club. Mm-hmm. So we did one for artists, we did one for business owners, we did one for entrepreneurs. We did one which was just basically like hey anybody who wants to come and likes the arts you can come. So it's been a very successful thing because it's women networking with other women and building allies and uh, camaraderie across sectors mm. and a great way to make new friends a great way to find like-minded people to work with for your projects right um because there's always whatever i ask for um you know reference hey do you know a photographer do you know a, a filmmaker etc i always get predominantly male suggestions mm. so this is also a great way to sort of develop female female listings let's say of like designers etc mm-hmm. um and i think one of my things that i want to do for a year i don't know if i'll do it but i mean if i'll be able to do it is to see for one year if i can only work with female clients female or female identifying and how that world would be how that year would be for me and how that experience would be for me as a company but also as a experience and experiment thank you for being such a gracious guest and answering with the patients. No, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Looking forward to there's so much synergy in terms of what you're doing and we're doing. So we're always looking for allies to help build the arts uh, sector together. So looking forward to keeping the conversation going. Where can we find you? Where's the best way to get in touch with you? And um, needless to say for my listeners all links will be included on the episode notes. So please make sure that you go check out these links but um for those who are I don't know driving or don't have time uh, where's the best way to find you Yeah so if you just google Shreya Nagarajan Singh which is my very very long name uh everything should come up we're on Instagram we're a little bit on Twitter we're on Facebook we're on LinkedIn but our website is probably the best way to contact us understand our work look at the projects we've done etc and that's uh, www.shreyanagarajansingh.com um and if you ever in chennai uh, hit us up and maybe we'll uh, we have a little cute little art space in malapur um it's an arts incubator space uh, and our office so you can come and have coffee with us sounds fantastic i hope to take you up on that offer sometime very near in the future thank you sharan gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in